Hello and welcome to Taunts, a podcast of in-depth interviews about emotions and the way they shape our lives. I'm your host, Claire Tonti, and I'm so glad you're here for season two. Each week I speak to writers, activists, experts, thinkers, and deeply feeling humans about their stories. And I'm so thrilled to bring you a very deeply feeling human today in Rhiannon Joyce. Now, Re is an integral part of the Shameless Media team, spearheading their brand partnerships. If you haven't heard of Shameless Media, let me fill you in. I interviewed their co-founders, Zara and Mish, well, Zara McDonald and Michelle Andrews, back in 2018 when they were first launching for my other podcast called Just Make the Thing. And these two young women have built the most amazing business since then. They started with a podcast called Shameless, which is a show for smart people who love dumb stuff. Think pop culture, Hollywood, influencers, reality TV, basically all the things we're told we shouldn't care about but secretly do. And back in 2018, which really isn't that long ago, there was no one speaking about this stuff, which you can't really imagine now. They felt like there was no one really speaking to young people about the things that they were really into. And so they hit on the zeitgeist back then. Fast forward to 2022, and Shameless is now a media company that also represents a community of whip-smart young people who connect via Instagram, TikTok, an ever-passionate book club, and a weekly newsletter called Ask Shameless. They have become a leading voice for Gen Z and millennial Australians with more than 40 million podcast downloads, 280,000 social media followers, and 40,000 newsletter subscribers under their belts. They've also grown from a team of two to a company of seven. And today I'm going to introduce you to their partnerships director, Rhiannon Joyce. Now, Rhiannon talks today about how she came to be on the Shameless Media team, about being a young woman in the advertising industry at a really high level, and what she loved and also what she hated about working in that environment. Rhiannon talks about her incredible mum and the role model and blueprint she's given her for womanhood and how to sort of manage it all and have a career. She talks about meeting Zara and Mish and what it took to take a leap of faith and join their team in a really new kind of way of working when she'd been in a really traditional safe job before that. She also talks about what she's learned along the way in navigating career changes and living alone during lockdown. She's wise and warm and funny and just a whole vibe in and of herself. I totally think you should go and follow her on Instagram. She's super aspirational, I think, would be the word to describe Brie. I was so thrilled to record this conversation at the Shameless HQ and get to see where the girls are working and understand a bit more about what they do. I loved every minute of this and I hope you do too. I can't wait to watch Ree's star continue to rise. Here she is, Rhiannon Joyce from Shameless Media. Hello, Rhi. Hello. Oh, it's so nice to see you in person. I know. It honestly makes the biggest difference, I feel like, already the energy is. um, Totally right, because we already did this interview, Mm, but we we did did. it in like horrible lockdown when we were both like struggling and the Mm. sound wasn't working and it was terrible. So how are you feeling coming out of lockdown now? So much better, I feel. Like last lockdown really messed with me, to be honest. I felt that I was at a point where I was very fatigued, very over the whole experience. And I, I did struggle quite a lot, particularly with my mental health. I just did things that I felt I needed to do to make it better, put a little bit of more extra work and time into myself and like creating boundaries, particularly at home, like working from home. I live on my own. So I was working from home, living on my own and didn't really feel like I had that separation between the two. So yeah, that was challenging, but I just introduced like my own boundaries, made sure I got out for my exercise when I was allowed to. And that definitely helped. I am loving being back in the office. I am a typical extrovert. I really just feed off other people's energy and just being back with the girls and the wider team. We've grown as well. Um, So so we hired Sarah in lockdown as our part-time videographer. So it's so nice to come back and see everyone and also have fresh faces and just adds to the dynamic of Shameless. So it's been really nice. Oh, it's so good, isn't it? How did you find living by yourself? What were the things that you put in place, those boundaries to help you kind of navigate the isolation? I had to be really consistent with myself in terms of my routine. I felt that when I did have a clear routine and I had clear goals throughout the day, that that made me feel a little bit more fulfilled. Sounds a little silly, but It honestly, doesn't at all. This, is, this show is all about <laughs> looking after what's going on in our heads. So anything that works... 
far yeah. away. We okay. all need it. Okay. okay. Um, the main ones for me were definitely I would wake up consistently around 6, 6.30 in the morning. I felt that I made time for myself. I did. I did start meditating, which is something I've never done before. Mm. Really, really basic 10 minutes, just breathing exercises. And then I would just go for my morning walk and coffee made that time for myself, alternate between listening to music and podcasts. I did find listening to podcasts this time around in lockdown a little bit challenging. I think just because I do work in the audio landscape, it was nice to kind of switch off. So I was leaning more to music as my place to escape, or I would call my friends in other states or a few of my friends in Sydney were going through lockdown for the first time as well. So I did find a lot of solace and comfort in talking to them and like them coming to me and leaning on me for that experience, which we obviously being Melbournians, had a few times. <laughs> yeah, we were old hands at the whole thing, really. Yeah, so that was like very much my morning routine. And I just found when I would have meetings, I actually opted out of Zoom quite a lot this wow, time. okay. And I felt that did help a lot. I think traditionally of my job, a lot of it is networking and relationship building. And before COVID, that was very much face-to-face or on the phone. Um, and then Zoom and Teams obviously became a big thing during COVID to get that face-to-face connection. And I totally understand that. And I do think in the early days that was really valuable. But this time around, I found it quite debilitating. Mm-hmm. So I just made that acknowledgement and decided that only when it was essential for, for me to be on Zoom was I on Zoom. So our internal whips to see the girls and check in, that was really important from a leadership standpoint but also presentation. So if I had to present something that was a bit more bespoke and integrated, then absolutely face-to-face. But I opted for the phone and it was actually, it, it alleviated a lot of stress for me as well. So that was something in the workplace I found really helped. Yeah. Do you know what? That's, that's so interesting because I found that too. I hated Zoom. Yeah. And then I heard that it's actually because in reality, in the normal human interactions, we're never up close with someone unless we want to have sex with them or kiss them. <laughs> Or we're like really angry at them, right? And you get in someone's face. And so having to stare A, at your own face, but B, up close, all these other people's faces actually makes you physically agitated. I know. You know what I mean? I was getting agitated with my vanity because I kept looking at myself and I was like, get over yourself. Like, but everyone does it. We've seen all the memes. I know it's not just me. So that's fine. But I totally feel you in that sense. It did become a little bit like this. This is weird. I know, totally. I feel like that I drink wine song by Adele really summed up a lot of my feelings about this, like just I need to get over myself. I know. Just all the things that you're seeing in your face. But, yeah, I feel like the phone, it's like podcast, right, because it's just audio. It's it's sort of you're able to get more personal and be focused. I think a lot of people were doing all the same thing. Everyone's looking at themselves Mm. all the time. Yeah, no, and you're way more – yeah, you are very focused when you're on the phone as well, and I did notice that this time around. So, yeah, that was something work-wise I felt really helped. Totally. I wanted to ask you about, well, not vanity exactly, (laughs) but more about womanhood because I'm really interested in our early experiences of womanhood and how that shapes who we become. What were your early experiences of womanhood? Not necessarily vanity, but like, (laughs) you know, what what idea did you have about being a woman when you were little? It's, it's an interesting one for me because when I was thinking about this question, when we spoke last time, I kind of reflected and was thinking about what we discussed. And I, I do think for me personally, I, did, I didn't really come into my own as a woman until my late teens, early 20s. I do think I was quite a sporty kid growing up. I was very focused on basketball. I was very close with my sisters and my mum, and they were great examples of women, particularly my mother. Worked full-time. She had four kids under five. She then went on to study her PhD and work full-time, raise us. My dad travelled a lot for work. So I think in terms of like a really strong female role model, my mum was like the best it could get in that environment. But I don't think I really appreciated that as much until I was a bit older. Um, I just saw, I guess, my experience as a child and like womanhood as being I don't, can I say tomboy? I don't know. Yeah, I, can, I, I don't have to say that. Look, you know what? I think it's a term that everyone understands what you mean. Yeah. And, and we've moved past that, I think. But when we were growing up, that was mm. definitely a term, right? Yeah. For a girl who was showing more masculine energy, yeah. I guess, which is kind of crazy I when know. you think, well, not crazy, but you know, strange when you think about it's it. It's an now. odd one because I do think yeah. with hindsight, I reflect on that time and I'm like, I was very much a tomboy. I played a lot of sport. I didn't really identify as 
enjoying traditional oh, sort again, of like girly, like girly stuff, girly feminine stuff do. with bows and, you know, yeah, all of that, that was yeah. never me. And it wasn't my sisters and my parents, you know, they really encouraged us to just kind of embrace what we loved and sport was a huge part of what mm. I loved growing up. And you had a really competitive environment, right? And you yes. have a twin. I do. Yeah. Yes. So I have a twin sister. We are all incredibly competitive. <laughs> it, it, it's, yeah, like at points I was like, this is not well. <laughs> But I think that's natural and what I really respect my parents is that they created boundaries for us to not be hyper-competitive where it was – they created an environment where it wasn't negative, that competitiveness. So it was very much encouraged and harnessed to be like be the best version of yourself, make sure you're putting in effort, but don't let that take away from who you are or lash out or like anytime we have displays of like, um, you know, when you're a kid and you're growing up, you get frustrated with something doesn't go your way, particularly in sport, like playing basketball, my parents would not have it. They'd be like, that's not how you deal with conflict or emotion. You need to kind of go inwards. And like, there was a lot of those conversations when I was younger, mm-hmm. um, which I now look back on. And I'm like very lucky in that hyper-competitive environment that those conversations were had because it makes you make sense of how you think and feel as opposed to just kind of leaning into that emotion and thinking that that's fine. But my sister and I, Taylor is my twin. I'm one of four. We definitely developed a bit of competitiveness as we got a bit older. I think particularly in school, uh, my parents made a very conscious effort for us to have our own sense of self and identity. They put us in different houses when at my school that was not a thing. You were in the same family, you go into the same house. My parents put in special requests for us to be in separate houses. Wow. Is that because then you would compete against each other in sporting stuff? I think so. My mum told me it was because she always felt like people would position us against each other, even if we weren't doing it to ourselves. So she always felt like there was this subconscious bias to us, for us to be competitive. And she wanted us to create our own lanes and create our own opportunities by being in different houses. What that meant was that, so everything you did at my school was house orientated. So whether it be uh, sport related, so yes, we competed against the other houses, but captaincies, awards, anything that was academic or performing arts, it was all related around your house. So it actually would have been worse for us to be in direct competition in the same house because we would have been competing for the same roles and opportunities. Whereas by being in different houses, what that meant was we could take the opportunities that we wanted and felt were right for us. I went more down a performing arts sports path. My sister is incredibly intelligent, overachiever, did really well in like wordsmiths and art and sport as well. But what it allowed us to do was like carve out our own independence and identity within the school. Mm. Honestly, I think it was one of the best things my mum did for us. Wow. She sounds like such an insightful person. She is. Mm. Yeah. And are you identical? No, we're not. We look nothing alike as well. Really? So you wouldn't know. That's so interesting. No, I'll show you a photo of Taylor after. Oh, (laughs) I would love to see that. Absolutely. Oh, gosh, that's so interesting. How did you feel the world responded to you and to your sister, Mm. I guess, being competitive women who or girls who are into, you know, sport and traditionally more male pursuits, particularly Mm. from the generation that we've come through, like growing up back then? How did you feel like the world responded I think because sport was a huge part of my family. So my dad was a professional basketball coach and my brother was a professional basketball player. Truthfully, I think it was expected for us to be quite athletic and sporty. Uh, Interestingly, I do feel like that's where there was a little bit of a struggle, particularly because female sport, there aren't as many professional avenues that you can explore beyond junior level. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do think for Taylor and I, there was this intense desire for us to be the best versions of ourselves and be really successful in our chosen sport, which was basketball. Unfortunately, both of us did do quite well growing up. But I, what was interesting was we kind of got to a point and we've had this conversation before where we didn't feel like there were options for us. Wow. Yeah. So that's always disappointing when you feel like you're not the best in the sport. So you're not going to go to the WNBL. You're not going to get picked up by the AIS. So where, what are your options then? Like, do you just keep playing because you love the game and you enjoy it and that's it? And then you pursue other opportunities, whether that be go to uni, start working full time. We had like pretty early conversations about what our options were. And I'm talking like 15, 16. Mm. So I think it's really interesting that you're at that age and you're doing something that you love and are really passionate about, but you're also conflicted because you know that you're not the best. I'm I'm good. I believe in myself and I can do anything, but I, I also have this realistic mindset that 
we don't have the same options that men have in in that sport, particularly basketball. So at that age, I felt I felt like the expectations were us for to be good, and I think we met those expectations by society's yeah. standards, but. In terms of us, what our internal expectations were, it was like, well, we don't really have other options. So, so I can't make a career of this, no. even though I'm really good at it. Yeah. And even women right at the very elite level of basketball don't make that much money. No, exactly. Right? And a lot of women, I mean, we're seeing this play out in the AFLW, a lot of women work two jobs. Even in basketball as well, same thing. They go to uni or they have jobs they, and then they do training on the side and that's the reality for women and that's unfortunate but that comes from years and to your point earlier, that generation, that comes with years being behind. They're not being the investment and the interest from a junior level mm-hmm. that transcends to the professional level. We have, didn't have the academies. We didn't have the the volume of people who were interested in female sport at that time. And that's where a big gap was created. So I am excited for the next generation because you can see it happening now, even in the AFLW, that transition from junior to semi-pro to pro is so much more fluid. And I'm really excited and happy for young people, particularly females, to have that opportunity. Like I look at my cousin, she's an incredible summer. She lives in Queensland. She's an incredible AFL player. And I'm so excited that she can see the opportunity for herself to actually play AFLW because, you know, she's, I think, 15. I was having a very different conversation with my sister about what our options were than what she's having with her parents right now. And that's great. And I'm yeah. happy for them because, yeah, we didn't, we didn't have that. Which is when you reflect on it, it's so unfair. It's yeah. just so unfair. And I, it makes me think about my friend's brother who plays not even for the VFL in footy. Mm. I, he plays for a club. It's his career. Mm-hmm. But he's, it's just, I don't even really know. I don't know that much about no, football. <laughs> but, you know, he's not, it's not the VFL. Like mm. he's a, like quite a few steps below, but he still makes very good money and yeah. had a huge amount of interest and investment in him. I think it's a suburban club. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I had never really thought about that before, that those yeah. opportunities just aren't there. What has sport taught you when you were going through it? What has it taught you about your approach to life? Discipline, huge part of my structure and how I approach my work life now. I think there are certain expectations when you play sport at a junior level to even like quite a senior level where you have to make time and compromise. And I think even being able to have those conversations with yourself and your parents early on helps you prioritise the things that are really important for yourself. And I do really value that lesson, particularly in the workplace now. I also think teamwork, I know that sounds very cliche, but being exposed and working with different types of people in in a sporting team, because generally what happens with sporting clubs is that you have a group of people that are pulled from all different places throughout one city. So, for example, I lived on the Gold Coast. You know, I went to one school, but I played basketball with a group of 10 girls that went to eight different schools. So the types of people that you're work, working, yeah. <laughs> the types of people well, you that, are, you're yeah. working, you know, you're, you're mixing with and training yeah. with. You're playing with and building rapport and a sense of teamwork with are very different. And I think that really prepares you for the workplace because sometimes what I think you lose at school is that you fall into the habit of falling into a certain type of group or you identify with a certain type of group of people and then you stick to that. Whereas sport gives you the opportunity to work with different people and then when you're in the workplace, it's like, well, you don't get to choose who you get to work with. Mm. That's not a luxury. that You don't just get to pick your best friends to do your assignment with or run the relay with. It's, yeah. you know, like it's, yeah. it's always like, oh, I'm going to go with my friends. And it was the same in basketball, you know. Everyone was selected to be there and you have to learn to work together and be cohesive to be successful. And it's the same as a team in, in a work environment. So interesting. Where did you go? So when you were 16 and you were talking to Taylor and you were debating about what to do, what did you decide then from there the trajectory of your career would be? Uh, truthfully, I decided I did really want to explore full-time work. I think I had this weird obsession with not knowing what I wanted to do as such. I didn't have a clear vision of being like, I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a doctor. I just knew I wanted to work full time and build a career somewhere. And once I kind of made that decision, I started to speak to people around me. Very fortunate that my parents, family, friends are very close with. And even as like a teenager, I always asked a lot of questions and was very inquisitive. So I could get an understanding of what the people around 
my family were doing and what industries they were in. And you'll know this being exposed to media. Media is not an industry that people know about unless you are exposed to someone who's in that industry. Mm. So I was fortunate enough to have a family friend who was in media and we just got chatting. I really loved and respected this person. I always felt warm around them and felt inspired by how they went about their day today. And we just started chatting about what he did and he he was telling me, and I'm like, this sounds really fun, but I, like, don't really understand what it is. <laughs> like, what is this in theory? Like, what is media? And then I kind of grouped it in the advertising basket because I think at the time I was heavily exposed to, like, Mad Men and all of these, like, <laughs> ad world shows, and I was like, oh, advertising seems cool. Like, I want to make ads. Like, that's fun. That's, you know, see it on TV, lifestyle-wise, that's, that's cool. I've, and also I feel like I'm good with people. And I was like, I'll just lean into that relationship building side of things. I might not be the creative person, but I can be like the accounts person. I can manage the relationships. So yeah, I just kind of developed this interest in advertising and media and decided that that's what I wanted to do all from a conversation with a family friend. And like, I'm sure you'll be aware there is no subject at school that... No. No, advertising is not a subject. It's probably like one part of a business subject that is Mm. your expectation is to do a couple of pages on how did you promote this business, but there's no real theory or... No. Yeah, structure that I feel like that a lot of schooling is like that. Like Mm. I I don't think I learned a lot of things. Like a cooking class that actually teaches me how to prepare meals or something would be, you know, what is superannuation. I would love to do that. We always have this conversation about around tax time about how great it would have been if we learned how to do our tax returns at school. Like, why was that not a thing? (laughs) Exactly. So much of it. It's so ridiculous. So there wasn't any kind of avenue for you. I guess there's sort of media studies, but I don't even think they would have been helpful because the industry moves so fast, right? And it was very theory-based. I think once I decided that I did want to explore the advertising media world, I made a very conscious effort just to talk to people who were in the industry to try and understand all the different elements of it because there are a lot. You can go into communication, you can go into PR, you can go into advertising, creative, media. I could go on. So I just tried to understand as much as I could and then I actually went through the uni application process quite early on. So I went to Bond University on the Gold Coast. It's a trimester uni, so it operates similar structure to the US. So that meant I had to apply earlier than what most students did. So I knew I was going to uni and I'd been accepted into Bond halfway through year 12. So I didn't even have to, I mean, subject to your final results. Fortunately, that all worked out. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So I went through that process earlier on. The reason why I chose Bond was because they had a very broad degree of communications and you could do electives for the first year and then work out what your major actually was. So again, similar to the US. And I felt that that was the best thing for me because I did have this broad understanding of communications media, but I didn't understand what I actually wanted to do yet. So fortunately, that worked out being the right choice. Uh, yeah. I just, yeah, I just felt it was right and it, it worked and, out. And it's worked out really <laughs> yeah. well for you, definitely. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about being this really competitive, strong woman. I know we talked about this before. What is it like in the advertising industry once you get out into the workforce? What has been your experience? My experience in the industry has been very layered. I have had really positive Uh, inspiring experiences, particularly with management and growth and feeling valued. And then I have had the complete opposite. And media is traditionally a male-dominated landscape. I think in terms of career progression, there is a clear linear trajectory for you to be successful, Mm (laughs) So I felt early on, I was very disciplined and dedicated to just working my way up. A little bit tunnel vision, I think, in terms of my internal development. I kind of, looking back, I feel like I ignored a lot of little red flags mm. and that maybe like compromised my values and myself a little bit. And I, when I say that, I don't mean anything like massive. It's just like boundaries around your work-life balance and thinking it's very normal to work seven till seven and that's expected and that's what's required of you to get promoted and to get recognized and I just did that because that's what you had to do and you know work was my life in the earliest stages and I just knew that I had to work really hard to be recognized as Mm -hmm. opposed to doing really good work to be recognized. I do feel like early on that was the expectation. Then I found myself 
at a point in, in my career where I didn't want to just fall into the rat race of agency and feel like I'm just burning myself, at burning the candle at both ends, truthfully. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to be able to have a proper lunch break. I wanted to be able to go to the gym and not have people look at me like I wasn't doing my job. Things like that I felt earlier wow. on. Yeah, early on I just feel like with hindsight that was what was expected and that's pretty standard expectation. Whereas across the advertising industry, I think do you so. think? And in yeah. a, a lot of those kind of corporate I think jobs? it's corporate jobs as well as advertising has this obsession with like the, the early 2000s and the 90s of like the good old days. And I'm like, they weren't good. <laughs> <laughs> they were terrible. <laughs> and, you know, the lifestyle might have been great and people were doing fun things, junkets, whatnot. But in terms of the working conditions, not great. I even found myself, like, I started full-time work in 2013. You know, I started working straight after uni. And, again, like I said before, the working conditions, it was expected you work 7 till 7. It was expected that you don't take a lunch break. And, you know, if you are invited to events after work, you go because you're lucky to be there. And it's just very expected behaviours. And now I just feel I have very different boundaries. I think as I matured and I got a bit older, I started to realise that it was okay to say no to things. It was okay to take your lunch break. Oh, (laughs) absolutely. My goodness. Do you think that that is a masculine energy in that? Were were there a lot of women working with you or was it mainly male-dominated? Definitely male-dominated. I think 80% male, 20% female. I had incredible role models in the early stages of my career that were female. And then I do think that kind of dropped off in that middle phase of my career. When I moved into a sales role, I felt that sales is... So when I say sales, I mean advertising sales. Heavily male-dominated, especially in a leadership level. Yeah, there, were, there weren't a lot of females that I really saw as role models or people I could lean on. And I do think that culture and the expectation of get shit done oh, okay. um, is driven by men. Um, yeah, rather than the quality of the work. Yeah, and, and I'm the- quality over quantity always, mm-hmm. I feel. And that's something that I still to this day really value and clear boundaries. And it's just it's hard when you're in an environment where that is that is encouraged and expected. Yeah, completely. Yeah. It doesn't strike me as very conducive for people who want to have kids either. Not at all. Do and you think, is that one of the reasons why women drop off or do you 100%. think? 100%. Yeah. I think so. And this is obviously subjective, but I do think women have to get themselves to a position where they feel like they can come back and they can be in that position for a while. I think there is this, I need to be at this level and then I can have a baby. Because if I'm not at this level, then I run the risk of being replaced by someone who is younger than me, ambitious, whatever that may be. I mean, I don't, I obviously don't have kids. I have a lot of friends in the industry that do have kids who have been able to find a dynamic that works really well for them. And Mm. some of them are in very senior leader positions and are fortunate enough to be in businesses where they have felt supported to take time off and have children and prioritize that. But then I also have friends who have not had that experience and have felt pressure or judged to to make that decision. And I think that's just subconsciously, that's something women experience that men will never have to. Mm. Or they don't, they're not made to. No. And I think culturally there needs to be a shift and in some workplaces it is happening, right, where we're looking at parenthood as parenthood, mm. not motherhood. Mm. And those hours, the seven till seven and that kind of roller coaster, the hard drinking, all of that stuff, yeah. and I've seen that in the in advertising mm. industry, the deals get done at 3 o'clock in the morning and On the golf the course. Party. I yeah. don't like golf. Yeah. <laughs> Great tweet the other day that just said men invented golf so they because they don't want to ask their friends to go for a That's walk. That's so true. I love that one. I've seen that as well, and it's true. Yeah, um, and and I do think that realistically, going back to what you said at the beginning about setting up boundaries and looking after your mental wellness and your headspace, all of that is conducive to better, more thoughtful, more considered work and a better quality of work, right? And I think just working. Seven till seven. I mean, what kind of quality of work are you doing if you're hungover while you're doing it and then you're drinking till all hours of the morning and, yeah. you know, and I'm sure there's lots of great work that's being done, but I also think there's probably, you can do things very efficiently in a shorter amount of time and still be able to get to the gym and have a life outside exactly. of that. Exactly. And that's you know? what I was thinking the entire time you we were just saying that is it's, it's great to be able to feel proud 
in your work, but what you want is to feel pride in every aspect of your life. Now, that is hard to achieve. You can't have it all. And we all know that. Like, (laughs) I know it's sad, but I I do think the older I get, the more I really value my time outside work as well and creating space with the people I care about most and really valuing that and not letting work infringe on that or, you know, bleed into that, into that time. Mm, Absolutely. Going back to your mum, I know we talked about it already. I already know, but listeners, they have no idea about the story of your mum. So do you want to tell us about her? My mum, well, what's most interesting and comes to the forefront of my mind is the conversation we've already had around boundaries. Today, I feel that was something that my mum taught me very early on. And I think she's been able to accomplish a lot. She's been very successful in her career. She has a PhD. She also raised four kids. Whilst my dad was traveling quite a lot, uh, so my dad was away for extended periods of time. And, you know, my mum had very clear boundaries around what the expectations were for us to contribute to the household as children, what her expectations were as a mum and being there for us in, in as a mother figure, but also as a role model. And I think when we were younger, coming back to discipline, yeah. there were things that were just expected of us and we contribute to the household. We all had chores. We all had really clear jobs that we had to do. And if they weren't done, like we yeah. were reprimanded yeah. for that. So <laughs> fury, yeah, rain right down. Or whatever, and, you yeah. know, mum, mum was the one who facilitated all of that for us. And, you know, as I got older and as I started to have conversations with my mum about making decisions and feeling conflict over prioritizing myself in situations, it was so great to have my mum there because she was the perfect example of it being okay to make decisions for yourself and not feeling this pressure that as a female, and I think this is something that females do feel, is that you have to be selfless and you have to give up yourself for other people in order for you to be fulfilled. And my mum didn't do that. She didn't ever give up on herself or what her dreams were and what, oh, I'm getting upset. (laughs) No. She sounds like an amazing person. I think at times where those decisions are always the hardest because you do feel conflicted. I always went to my mum for support and I always knew that she would give me really sound advice. And if she didn't think it was actually the right thing to do and I had to be give a bit more, she would tell me. But I also knew that if she felt like I was giving too much of myself up in a situation, she would be the first to be like, what do you want? What is important to you? And I think to be able to have those conversations as a young woman with someone that you really look up to and you you can see, I could see my mum doing that for herself. And I, I just had such a profound respect for her to be able to have those conversations with us uh, very early on as well. So... Yeah, she's great. <laughs> yeah, I feel emotional now oh, too. Sorry. No, that's just such. A, I'm I'm sure your mum would just be so thrilled to hear talking about. Her yeah, thing. she would, and you know, even to this day, she's still that person I always count on for really sound advice. And she's so she is just very worldly, very experienced, and very calm and a realist. So when you have conversations with her, you know that what you're getting back in return is the most sound advice. It's not subjective. It's not gaslighting in any way. It's not like, oh, well, what do you think? It's it's always from a place where she has your best interest, but also wants you to, to have the best outcome as well. What's some of the best advice she's given you? This is going to sound very funny. I love it. <laughs> it's fun. I love it. My mum and I love Strictly Ballroom. Okay. So um, there's this quote in this film, my mum always says this to me, and she says, a life lived in fear is a life half-lived. I love that. (laughs) And we always say that to each other because I think fear can get in the way of so much progression. And when I think about when I first moved to Shameless, that's that's what that, that conversation happened. And I was fearful and I was scared and I didn't know if it was the right thing to do. I did in my heart, but I remember being like, this is a risk. And my mum and I had this conversation after I left the conversation with the girls and she was like, I just feel like this is what you need. You need to be, you need to be somewhere where your values are heard and you feel respected and you're moving into a place where you're more fulfilled in your day to day based on the people that you're around and the content and what you're putting out. And 
she said to me, a life lived in fear is a life half lived. And I was like, you are so right. I need to make this decision. So it's not mum's advice, but it kind of is because it's kind of our motto. Yes, that's so good. Paul Mercurio. I know. Oh, my God. It's always a funny one because I feel like it's that film where people either love it or they hate it. Yes. My sister and I always argued because she always thought that the like the blonde dancer was like better at but dancing. Tina Sparkle. Tina, no, not Tina Sparkle. The one that goes with the guy who's like all tanned. What's oh. his name? She wears yellow at yeah. the start. Oh my goodness! No, Paul Mercurio's yeah. partner. Yeah. Um, and she always thought that she should like he should end up with her. And I was oh, like, really? I think you've missed the whole point of the That's movie. Not it. <laughs> <laughs> no. I know. What is it about that movie that you both love so much? Other than Obviously, the iconic quote, a life lived in fear is a life I've lived. I love that. <laughs> it's beautiful, isn't it? That's yeah. what you can title the episode. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. You've done my work for me, Ree, already. I oh, love it. Um, what I love about the film is the soundtrack, obviously, is beautiful. I think the cinematography, it's set in Australia. It's quite like it's that Kath and Kim sort of vibe where it's, you know, they seem very bogan and very naff. But it's just such a lovely story and I feel like the coming together of the different families and the dad is actually the star for me. Um, remember, yes. you know, his dad was a very good dancer. Yes. I, I feel like if you haven't seen this movie, I'm sorry, I'm ruining it for you. But... Well, what have you been doing your whole life? It's I know. been out since, what, like the 90s or something. <laughs> yeah, I just loved um, just the character development. They all had their own little story and it kind of all came together in the end. But it's just like a beautiful piece of film. And it's Australian. And I love that. Sorry to be sentimental. No, I loved that. And even just the dresses, the Mm, costuming. Oh, Tina Sparkle out there with the pineapple hat on. She was just everything. I used to do dancing as a kid. Just everything I wanted to be. And then the trajectory of Fran and just all the lines in it that are so So iconic. Oh my goodness. What is it about the dad in that? Why is he the star for you? I think because he's character develops throughout like at first you, you kind of think he's no one like he's a bit of a nothing character a bit of a filler mm. character and then you start to realize that he is a very integral part of the story and also his son's growth like I feel like when they have that moment together and he's like kind of confronting him about like the truth and he just wants his dad to be honest with him and be be really I guess, vulnerable yes, I guess vulnerability that's exactly yeah. right. like to be very vulnerable with him It's so beautiful and, you know, just the scenes of him dancing downstairs on his own. He put the music on. I don't know if you remember that. He'd be in the basement of the studio and that's where they saw him a couple of times and he'd he'd be doing like the rumba or something downstairs on his own and that's when the son was like, what is he doing? Like he doesn't dance. Yeah, he does. Yeah, and he was this iconic dancer who then kind of made up his own steps and then had everyone was sort of thinking, what are you doing making up your own steps in ballroom? You can't do that. But that's exactly what he was doing. Yeah. That connection that he could have had with him and that sense of feeling like he would have felt like he belonged earlier on had they had that conversation or been vulnerable and opened up to each other. But Oh, that's so nice. So beautiful. (laughs) And that's like sort of the relationship you have with your mum. Oh, 100%. Oh, I yeah. love that. Do you know what it reminds me of? At the end scene when he's dancing the steps the Academy want him to dance mm. and then his dad stands up and says something like, we lived our lives in fear, 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 fear. And it like <laughs> echoes around the oh, room. It's so good. If you haven't seen the film, you're going to be thinking, what Put is happening? Put it in happening? the show notes as well. So yeah, I will. It. I might even play a little clip of it because oh, it's definitely. so good. And then he just completely changes it up and then Fran comes on and they have this amazing dance. It's off so and... beautiful. I'm definitely watching that. Oh, me too, for sure. So was that a pivotal movie for you? Huge, yeah. Yeah, did you have any others that were like really formative for you? Uh, I definitely had a few TV shows and films. I would say, weirdly, The Hunger Games was like very pivotal for me. I think Katniss Everdeen was, I mean, obviously Jennifer Lawrence, but I read the books and then obviously the films came out and I just found her to be incredibly inspiring as a teenager. And obviously that story is like quite dark. It's set in dystopian um, scenario, but in terms of being like a really strong female leader, speaking out, having a strong presence and that being inspirational to others um, as opposed to it being, I mean, it was positioned as a threat, but I think, you know, overcoming that and it being. She was sort of challenging the leadership, right? And challenging the status quo and Mm. trying to take down that kind of hierarchy of the wealthy who had everything and then everyone, most people didn't have anything. So she was really talking about equality, right? Exactly. And being brave and 
kick ass with a, a bow and arrow or I something. Oh, uh, yeah. Is it yeah. bow and arrow? Or I, was... I guess it's right. She's an archer. I guess oh, okay. That, that's like, I don't know what the official term is, but yeah, bow and arrow, I think. Yeah. But I, I loved the Hunger Games. I really, when I was a kid, and it's so funny when I reflect on the shows that I used to watch as a child, I used to watch a lot of anime. Um, so I watched Sailor Moon, which is a show that's based on this girl group. They're kind of from moon and supernatural but then they are reincarnated on earth it sounds funny but it's so good um they're superheroes and they're essentially there to defend humans so usagi who is the main character again is strong female but she's also very vulnerable and a bit more emotional in when she's herself not when she's sailor moon and i think that that was one of the first shows where i saw vulnerability and it being like She's crying, she's upset, she can't make decisions. And, you know, if you went and watched the show, you'll laugh at over some of the things that she has to make decisions about. But in terms of vulnerability and being emotional as a female and then equally being strong and powerful and being the only one that can really save the world was very interesting because I don't think we saw a lot of those types of characters particularly played by females um, in pop culture or TV, especially cartoons. I think they were very male-dominated. But I also liked that for all her weaknesses, there was someone in the group, whether it be Sailor Jupiter or Sailor Mars, who filled that gap. So they were actually stronger as a unit as opposed to her being the strongest individuals. There were clear gaps in her strengths and her skill set and they they were matched. Yeah. So I kind of liked that when I was a kid. And then it's interesting. You kind of go through, I think for me – that teenager phase, I watched a lot of Game of Thrones and I read the Game of Thrones books. And again, I feel like you have such a broad spectrum of characters that make up the the world of Game of Thrones. And there's so many strong female characters that you can despise, like Cersei, Mm. but you'll equally respect. (laughs) Correct. Um, So yeah, I think Game of Thrones had a huge influence on me, particularly through my uni years both the books and the TV show, I developed quite an unhealthy obsession with that show. Yeah. Um, what it was... is it about Cersei that you found so compelling? And mm. Cersei is very complex. She was undeniably determined to to get what she wanted and that was scary at times, but her love and her protection for her children and going above and beyond to do anything to protect her kids, I don't think anyone can argue against that, particularly in a show where everyone was essentially bad. Yeah. There was no real good guy in that show. Like, in no. the end, everyone did end up... Was murdering everybody. Yeah, yeah and also, like, deceit played a huge factor in it, lying and whatnot. So, yeah, I think for her it was just, like, this undeniable protection, sense of protection over her children and her family and that being a huge priority for her. It was just very admirable. And she was also just incredibly intelligent, obviously very manipulative, (laughs) (laughs) which isn't something that you definitely like. I respect in the context of the show. Yeah. yeah. And in some ways, though, as a political mover and shaker, I think sometimes women, I mean, there have been stereotypes about women being manipulative Mm. or whatever, but I think for men, they're allowed to be because they're in a political sphere and they're a leader and they need to be able to do that. Whereas for women it is, it's seen as like one of a better word, bitchy or something. Yeah, of course. You know, whereas her being able to make power moves, Mm. I'd be like, yes. I know. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, there were a couple of scenes where I was like, that was so boss. Yeah. (laughs) But also so many people just died. I know. And this is so terrible. I know. And even when she has to walk naked through the I know. Very powerful scene. She holds Mm. herself and then she collapses at the end when we're talking about vulnerability. That's where you also see a side of her where she is genuinely willing to do anything to protect her family to the point of like utter disgrace of herself. And I think up until that point, she'd always been so poised and so beautiful and like the, even the long hair and the cutting of the hair was so symbolic in that show. Mm-hmm. It was like she was reborn and that's when she became far more jaded and far more scary. Yeah, yeah, and like ten, tended towards psychopath yes. kind of status, oh, you know, murdered yeah. more people. Not that we're thinking people should be murdered, but yeah. just that it is so interesting, that fragility, right, mm. of women and that or people, I think human beings are essentially fragile it's just that some people cover it with a whole lot more stuff. What have you learnt moving to Shameless and working in this space? What have you learnt about the power of vulnerability? I have learnt so much. I feel like Shameless is the first workplace I've been in where I've felt really safe. And when I refer to safety, what I refer to is being my most vulnerable and genuine self and not ever feeling like I have to hide something about me or how I'm feeling or how I'm thinking. I, I think Michelle and Zara have 
cultivated this environment where vulnerability is encouraged and also feeling okay after being vulnerable is encouraged, mm. which is pretty, pretty amazing. Is. How does that help or enhance your work? It makes me want to work harder. I think mm. I have such a sense of pride about being part of this company and being part of this vision. I feel as though every day I come to work, I'm genuinely part of something that can make a change. And I know that sounds a bit earnest, but it's how I think and feel. And I, that's so exciting to be in an environment where that, that's how I feel. In what way? Like what change do you see? I see us being at the forefront of conversations. I feel like we're not reactive, we're proactive, and that's exciting. I think we always want to be on the mood. We want to read the mood and make sure that we're being respectful of it and, you know, we're not ever making people feel ostracised or they're not part of this community. We want this community to always be welcoming and that that's exciting to inclusive. be able to, to... Yeah, inclusive and to be able to harness something that is inclusive and people do feel safe. Mm, yeah, it's beautiful. And, and I think you hit the nail on the head then about being proactive and being on the front foot because so often in media in Australia, the conversation starts with quite male-dominated mm-hmm. focus, right? Like even news reports forever have had mainly male content. We haven't had that kind of celebrity culture and fashion and, you know, which men love as well. Yeah. But being able to see a media organisation that's so organically for such diversity and and young voices too, right, I think is just so admirable and exciting. Oh, my goodness. I know. I love it. It's And it's true. I feel, yeah, I feel very proud to be part of this business. Yeah. So what is your role at Shameless? So I am the Marketing and Partnerships Director at Shameless. It is a bit of a hybrid role. I essentially work with Michelle and Sarah on bigger brand projects. So for example, at the start of the year, we rebranded and we essentially created core pillars under Shameless Media to really solidify the touch points that we had with the community. We knew we were connecting with our community in a different way than other businesses because we had multiple touch points, but we really wanted to hone in on those touch points and give them a sense of purpose and give partners and our community a really clear understanding of what those touch points are and what, what they touch mean to points? us. Sorry. <laughs> um, so I guess they're our pillars. So essentially, Shameless Media, we have three core pillars. We have podcast, social, and newsletter. Those are the touch points that we have with our community. And essentially, each touch point has a unique role from a branding perspective, but also from an audience perspective. So when it comes to listening to the community, we want to make sure that each of those touch points can stand on their own, but also work better together. So we want our, our listeners and our community to feel like they can follow along all three. So for example, we want a shameless community member to listen to the podcast, follow us on Instagram and read the newsletter because they're getting three different touch points with the brand, three different experiences that can live on their own, but are also very complimentary. Mm. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. That is such so impressive to say it in that way because I have just had no training at all no, in media or so marketing. Fun. So I'm like, cool, touch points. I'll put that in my oh, dictionary. Sorry. <laughs> and then the second part of my job. So, right. so the second part of my role, so marketing and partnerships director. Partnerships is essentially I'm responsible for managing the relationships between shameless media and brand partners. So we operate on an advertising model. So brands sponsor Shameless Podcast episodes so that we can keep our content free for the community and keep pushing out really valuable content. My job is to make sure that the brands that we work with reflect the values and the interests of our community. So it's pretty important if I, if yeah. I might add. It is very important. No, it's hugely yeah. important. And and I think that's the joy, right, of Shameless that you've got such an incredible community mm. who have listened from the beginning, who love Mission Zara and are following what you do and your message is so clear. So it must be fun. It is. And I think that's the biggest point of difference for Shameless Media is our community. And it's something I am and I know the girls are incredibly protective of when it comes to working with different brands. And we're always taking on feedback and advice from our community about how they engage with the brands to make sure that we are aligning with brands that reflect their values and their interests. And, you know, we have a pretty vigorous process when it comes to, I guess, auditing. (laughs) It sounds a bit clinical. Um, Or reviewing. Reviewing is probably a better word to say. We have a very considered process when it comes to reviewing the brands that we work with. Mm -hmm. And 
it's my job to make sure that we're never making the audience feel like they're the content. Content comes first always. Yeah. And the community. Comes so first, content yeah. and community over revenue always. So mm-hmm. it's my job to make sure that we're protecting those two values first and foremost because we're so proud that we have a community that are incredibly engaged. And we know, and I know from a brand media perspective, that that's really valuable to brands. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I never want our community to be taken advantage of by a brand. I would never allow it. No. Um, <laughs> Good on you. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're not Cersei, but you're, you're Katniss Everdeen yeah. out there being like, stay away with your archery yeah. bow and arrow stuff oh. going on. I, I totally agree. And I think really at the heart of it, right, is connection. Mm. And that's what's so valuable from, yes, from a money marketing perspective, but really essentially from human perspective. Absolutely. Right? Because podcasts and what you guys make, make people's lives better. Yeah. And make them feel less alone, which is at the heart of things, right? Absolutely. Mm, it's so beautiful. Hey, I know people are going to want to know this. How did you meet Mish and Zara? <laughs> what was that like? Uh, Mish, Zara and I actually met at an event through a mutual friend. So this mutual friend was actually the person that ended up putting me forward for the job. Uh, we met... What year are we? Year I'm about? not even sure. Yeah, anymore. I know. It's a bit like that. We <laughs> met in 2019 at this okay. event. I was just introduced to them casually. I was already a shameless listener, big fan of the girls, and we just spoke briefly, maybe about 15, 20 minutes. And then 2020, May, I received an email from Zara McDonald to my work email. <laughs> and I remember reading it being like, Zara McDonald. And I was like, what? Yeah. And then... It was intro through that friend, Pat. Um, it was like, Pat passed on your details. We just want to have a casual conversation. Nothing serious. Um, just want to get your thoughts on a potential opportunity. And I was like, oh, okay. She said yes straight away, of course. I'm not playing hard to get. This no. is absolutely, yeah. And it was like the fire in my belly was instant from that email. I'm nervous for you. Oh, I, I am like nervous even recounting this, this story. story. But yeah, and then we met very casually, just had a chat. They kind of talked me through what their vision was, what they were looking for. I asked a couple of questions because the girls hadn't really – They so prior to me coming on board, they'd worked with an influencer manager who is very experienced in social media landscape and influencer, influencer um, negotiations, but they were looking to transition more so to shameless media being a business. So that is something that we're very um, adamant on is that people understand that Michelle and Zara aren't influencers – Shameless Media is a media company. So that was a very considered decision for them to bring someone in-house so that they could solidify that position. And I had a lot of questions around what their vision was, who did they want to be, what did they want to carve out in the media landscape. And this conversation went for like an hour and I, I was like, i got to go. I'm actually working. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, it's too busy. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. then from there we had a few follow-up emails and then I met with them maybe two or three times again after that. I ended up doing a presentation to the girls' about my vision and what I thought where the yeah, growth opportunities were and what we could do together. And, yeah, I think it's it's funny because I did feel in my gut that this was the right thing to do, even though it felt I was a little bit fearful, more so the fear of leaving a very traditional job that was very secure in a time like COVID. I think I was, like, overwhelmed by that, that risk factor of it. But I just knew, and coming back to my mum, the conversations I had with her around the values alignment, being inspired by Michelle and Zara, being, you know, they're a couple of years younger than me, but being able to work in an environment where I'm surrounded by young people who are ambitious and motivated and are determined to make a change. I was just like, I have to do this. Mm. So I did. Yeah. And you haven't looked back, right? No. And I I just, honestly, when I think about that decision to leave and be part of Shameless, it was the best decision I ever made. And I hope the girls feel the same. I, th- I think they do. I'm sure um, they do. But yeah, what we, even what we've been able to achieve in the last year and a half and to be able to see the team grow, the content grow as well, like introducing Scandal, repositioning Shameless Media as a strong brand um, has been something that I've been very proud of um, to be part of. Oh, it's so exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. And I can't wait to see where you go from here. I can only imagine the heights you guys are going to get to. Yeah. Next year will be big and I'm looking forward to it. Have you got big plans? We do. 
Yeah. Secret plans? Can we oh, find out any watch of it? this space. All right, watch this space. No, I think next year our intention is to explore Shameless Live again. I think, you know, coming back to the community being such a huge part of our brand and really important to us, it's so important that we have that engagement with them and Michelle and Zara have the opportunity to connect with them face-to-face and, like, everyone's craving it. Mm-hmm. And we don't know what the show will look like. I think it will definitely be different to what we've done in the past. Uh, because we have changed the format of Shameless Media. So we did retire in conversation. We've replaced that with Scandal, which everyone is loving. So that was obviously a very good decision to have made. But in terms of the structure of the live show, I think it's still up in the air of how it will look. But I know it will be really meaningful and the community will love the experience because our intention is to make it better than what it has been in the past. So Mm. they can have faith in us. Yeah. Fantastic. Last question. What is your overall philosophy on life? There's two things I believe in wholeheartedly. The first is making time for yourself and setting boundaries. I do think preserving your mental health, giving yourself time every day to go inwards and be conscious of your your existence and how you think and how you feel and and try and make sense of that, even if it's just for five minutes, will profoundly impact you for the better. And I think if you, the more you do that over time, the more it becomes part of who you are. And I just think it's great to have those check-ins with yourself and be honest and be vulnerable. So that's the first one. And then the second one is, I think when it comes to being vulnerable, it's okay to have a moment and then feel like you weren't the best version of yourself as well and accept that and like move forward. I think sometimes vulnerability can encourage maybe an outburst or a moment where you're very upset or you're really frustrated. I think what how you behave and how you understand why you were in that point or why you were made to feel that way after math reflection is really important. Don't beat yourself up for having a moment. We all have Mm. a moment. Yeah. I think try and make sense of that and and if you can't, let it go because it's just going to eat away at you. So Exactly. It would have frozen the whole thing really. Just think, let it go. (laughs) You do. It's self-compassion, isn't it? And I think as women particularly can be really hard on themselves and it doesn't serve any anyone. I mean, I've met a lot of blokes, for instance, mm. who are not very hard on themselves. No. <laughs> and maybe and should, they should be, be. Yeah. you know. And I think, yeah, you're absolutely right because in being vulnerable and honest, someone else is allowed to also be mm. and give themselves room for compassion and then you meet each other in a more human, compassionate place. Yeah, and I think when people don't expect you to be vulnerable or it can surprise people and also make them feel more... Like yeah, you just normalised a behaviour yeah. and you've normalised, you know, I don't believe in like having a meltdown and then not reflecting on it or making sense of it. That's <laughs> not constructive, but I do think, <laughs> you know, yeah, there is a time, there are going to be times when you're not the best version of yourself and you do have a moment and how, how you pull yourself out of that and how you move forward it says more than the moment itself. Mm. Oh, 100%. Thank you so much, No, thank you. I'm so glad we got to do this again. Oh, and in person, it just makes so much difference. It's been so beautiful and I cannot wait to see where you go next. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right, you've been listening to a podcast with me, Claire Twenty, and this week with the wonderful Rhiannon Joyce. Now, for more from Shameless Media, you can head to shamelessmediaco.com and you'll find all their podcasts, newsletters, um, their book club, everything you need to know to follow them on social media as well over there. And for more from Re, I reckon you should go and check her Instagram out. It's just it's glorious. Uh, at Rhiannon Joyce um, or Riri on Instagram. She's also on TikTok too, so you can head over there and check out what she's doing. And also her new media agency that she does with Zara and Mish is called Sana, S-A-N-A. So you can go over and check that out too if you're someone who is in need of those kind of services. Okay. And for more from me, you can head to claretonti.com or follow me on Instagram at claretonti. I also have another podcast that's a recommendation show that comes out every Thursday called Suggestible with my husband, man, James Clement. We make fun of each other and recommend you things to watch, read and listen to. So if you like that kind of thing, head on over there. That comes out every Thursday. Taunts comes out every Monday. And there's a season one of Taunts with lots of different interviews, including ones with Claire Bowditch and Jamila Rizvi 
Zainab Johnson, just lots of different people, Tarang Chawla. So I really encourage you to go and check those out if you enjoyed this interview with Rhiannon as well. Okay, thank you as always to Raw Collings for editing this week's episode and I'll talk to you next week. Bye. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I create, speak and write today, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging, acknowledging that the sovereignty of this land has never been ceded. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 